Hello and welcome to the latest Energy and Utilities Market Talk podcast. For this edition, we are focusing on the water sector. While 2020 has been a year where many things have changed, one thing that doesn't change is the need for water, for human life and also industries and businesses. I'm Andrew Roscoe, Editor for Energy and Utilities. I'm joined by Gareth Rapley, Director of Energy and Utilities, and we're delighted to welcome Bob Brinia to the studio for a discussion on the most pressing issues and trends in the region's water sector. Bob Briniak has been in the region for many years and is CEO of Golden Sands Consulting. Welcome, Bob. Pleasure. So I think to start, I want to ask how important is the role of the private sector in delivering vital water infrastructure across the Middle East and North Africa? 2020, for the utility sector, we've seen a bit of a slowdown in terms of the power market, but we've seen a host of water projects moving forward and some contracts awarded. So if you could tell us a bit about sort of the increasing role of the private sector in delivering water infrastructure across the region. First of all, I think that it's important to say that it's definitely critical. Private sector has to get involved in the water industry. And for several reasons. Number one, billions of dollars are being planned to be spent by utilities and governments throughout the GCC and in North Africa. And that's a lot of capital that has to be provided. So the private sector is going to have to step in and provide a substantial share of that capital. That's particularly important today when you can see see COVID-19 and that's resulted in deficits. World oil prices are still fairly low. So capital spending is critical and relying more on the private sector is going to help fill that need. I think we've seen the shift towards private finance for projects since 2014 when the oil price dropped. So there has been the use of PPP in the region for utilities projects for a long time. The first one was in Oman in 1994 for the Mana IPP. However, we seem to have seen a wholesale shift almost towards using PPP for water projects in recent years. And because of that, can the private sector absorb all of the projects that we're, we're seeing at the moment and are expected in the coming years? That's interesting. I would say definitely yes, and here's why. You mentioned MANA coming in 1994, 1995. When you look at the water sector, the first IWP came in 2006, 2007 in Oman, and that was sewer. And since then, more and more developers have been getting into the business, and the infrastructure has been developing around PPPs. There's liquidity in the marketplace, and banks are getting familiar with the business. And when you have that familiarity, then the banks are more willing to lend. So my view on this is, is definitely, yes, the private sector can absorb that. No question in my mind. I'm just feeding on from there, Bob. But you mentioned there about liquidity, you know, banks getting more comfortable on financing. Obviously, this year has been an interesting one with the impact of COVID-19. We've seen various things happen recently. Talk around things like the construction sector, where other banks are willing to lend around project finances. They may have been a year or so ago. What impact are you seeing around lenders, investors and banks being comfortable with financing utility projects within the water sector? I think when sort of COVID-19 started becoming a major issue, say, end of February, March timeframe of this year, banks being conservative and how they run business, I think they didn't know what to do. I think there was a lot of question as to whether or not lending was going to go up or down or what was going to happen. I think at the end of the day, though, you know, lenders have to lend. If they don't lend, they don't make money. They won't make money for their own shareholders, so they have to do something. And I think what's happened is while there was confusion at the start, 
things have kind of stabilized. And I think lending is sort of returning, not exactly back to where it was pre-COVID-19, but certainly has improved a lot. And rates have not really changed that much. And all indications are, particularly from the U.S., for instance, that short and long-term interest rates are pretty well going to stay stable and low for the time being. So I think all that bodes well for the industry. As I look out here in the UAE across the Dubai skyline, the GCC is made up of you know various different countries. And I think what's been interesting to hear over recent months is around the liquidity and you know we're seeing ratings drops across different nations here. It seems like countries like the UAE still remain very strong, still remain very liquidable. But you've got countries such as Oman. What impact are you seeing on their ability to attract private investment? And how does that work around achieving competitive tariffs for water production in the region? That's an interesting point. I mean, we've seen ratings drops for Oman, for example. What impact will that have on financing for water? Well, I think it's, it's true. Certainly ratings have dropped, especially for countries such as Oman. Other countries, including Saudi Arabia, they're on sort of a credit alert. And other countries have, have seen their ratings fall. Despite all that, projects are still getting financed. I think what it does mean in some instances, and probably Oman is one case, you're going to see some lenders who just may not go into that particular country. But other lenders are going in. I think in the case of Oman, and why I don't think it's going to have a long-term detrimental impact, is simply because Oman has an excellent track record of paying. There hasn't been an instance yet that I'm aware of where they haven't paid their bills. And they've had, I would say, upwards 30 to 40 PPP-type projects, and in every single one of them, they've met their obligations. So I think the track record has a lot to say about it. So bottom line is, I think they will attract the capital. And something that I know we've had discussions about before, Bob, is problems for PPP in the region for utilities projects. It's obviously a well-established model, works very well, and sort of leading the way across the region for PPP and infrastructure. However, a lot of the developers and projects are highly leveraged. And what problems can this cause? It's an interesting observation when, when you look at these PPP projects, especially in the water and power sector where they're well established. Leveraging can easily be 80, 90 and, and upwards to 95%. And it does pose an issue, especially when the developer has many projects on hand at the same time. I think it's paramount that the utility or that the procurer makes sure that when they award their projects, they award them the grade A type you know, uh, developers, number one. Secondly, when they specify the requirements for the projects, it's often referred to as the minimum functional specs or the MFS, that they adhere to them and they have rigid guidelines. And this way you'll sort of minimize the likelihood of a company running into problem by being overly leveraged. And I think that's probably the best thing that you can do to mitigate those kinds of risks. Moving away from the financing now, Another trend that we are seeing, particularly over the last five years, is the decoupling of power and water production. So in the Gulf in particular, over the last couple of decades, we have seen large cogeneration plants become the norm where you had power generation with desalination. However, now we're seeing independent water projects, standalone desalination plants. What benefits do the standalone desalination bring to utilities and networks across the region? That's interesting. When these initial projects started getting off the ground, especially during the late 90s and early 2000 era, the demand for both power and water were high. So it didn't really matter whether you did them together, for example, as basically they did in Abu Dhabi, 
or whether you had some of them separated, as was the case later in 2007 in Oman, you needed power in the water. What's happened is that growth has sort of stabilized and come down to lower levels. And now by having them co-joined, such as an IWPP, it creates a problem. And that problem's created simply because power demand is much lower in the winter, and you really don't need the extra power. But at the same time, if you've got a technology that's based on, say, multi-stage flash, you require the power. And of course, water demand is relatively stable. So you end up having to run power plants when you don't need the power. And you're really only running the plants to enable you to be able to produce that water. So that's a problem. As a result of that, some of the utilities are looking at decoupling them. If you decouple them, then you're able to get a better control and management of both the power side and the water side. There's also a move away from some of the older technologies, such as MSF, into reverse osmosis, which, of course, is a far more efficient user of electricity. So at the end of the day, the utility gets not only a better power system, but more sort of cost-effective and attractive tariffs with the uh, reverse osmosis. And obviously one of the areas that's key across the world at the moment is as we're moving to a more sustainable energy system. And when we look towards the water side of energy and utilities, there's opportunities around desalination plants. And what opportunities do you really see that standalone desalination plants can offer by being powered by solar energy? There's no question about it if you've got Reverse osmosis plants, and they're using solar energy, that's going to have a tremendous impact on the tariff. That allows the developers to bid much lower and much more attractive tariffs. Good example of that, the recent Dawila IWP in Abu Dhabi. They had quite a bit of solar on the plant. Al Hassan, which is currently being managed by uh, Diwa, they've also allowed a lot of solar. And that in turn has enabled the developers to reduce the cost of water significantly. And it's one of the main reasons why water tariffs continue to come down. The bottom line is probably expect much more of that in the future. Yeah, that's going to be my next question, Bob. It leads on nicely. We've seen record low tariffs for desalination projects in the region over the last couple of years. We had Tawila that was awarded early in 2019, set a world record for, I believe, it was about 49 cents per cubic metre. This year we've seen even lower. We had Jubail 3A, IWP in Saudi Arabia, and most recently the Hassian IW bids have gone in. And again, we've had world record low submission there. What do you think are the main reasons for this? The big move towards the lower tariffs really took place over the last two years. And I think it's been attributable to primarily four factors. Number one, there's been definitely improvements taking place in energy optimization. When you look at uh, the production of uh, water, roughly 30-40%, especially if it's based on reverse osmosis, is attributable to energy. So if you're competing in a market, then you want to focus on energy optimization in order to get the sharpest tariff you can and win that project. So that's been one factor. The second one has just been simply low financing charges. Another significant portion of the tariff that's charged to most utilities is, is, is related to finance. So if you can get attractive financing, and a number of years ago, you know, export development type financing was what drove down the tariffs. These days, interest rates have been so low for such a long period of time, project financing has been quite attractive. So that's resulted in downside on the tariff. EPC costs have also been bidding more aggressively, especially two or three years ago when there were a few projects in the works. EPC companies were hungry, they needed work, uh, and a lot of them uh, really sharpened their pencils to get that bid through. 
And then finally, I think there's just simply been lower costs associated with the technology platform itself. In other words, the cost of, of, of optimizing a reverse osmosis plant has been getting lower and lower. So when you combine those four, you're ending up with the kind of tariffs you're seeing right now. Utilities across the region are now moving ahead with programs to reform water and electricity tariffs and reduce and even remove subsidies. So I've been out here for, for more than 10 years now and I remember subsidy reform used to be discussed. I remember speaking to utilities in Saudi Arabia in about 2012 and I asked them about subsidy reform and said it's something we'd like to do but it's a while off and obviously it's political as well which makes it difficult. However, following the drop in oil prices, we have seen a real commitment to this now. I mean, Saudi Arabia is a great example in its Vision 2030 programme sets out it wants to remove water <clears throat> subsidies. How important is this if the region is to succeed in establishing a competitive and profitable water sector? There's no question about it. It's important. And utilities and governments in all the jurisdictions need to move on this. It is primarily for three reasons. First of all, as you, as you indicated right at the start there, water is heavily subsidized. In fact, if you look at the ratio, it's, it's anywhere from, four, on average here, 40% to 60% is in fact subsidized in, in virtually all the jurisdictions. And this is a heavy cost burden on government. Uh, removing this subsidy is going to free up billions of dollars. And that's money that can be spent elsewhere. And that gives the governments uh, more leeway in terms of managing their own budgets. So that's the first reason. The second factor to take into account is that a lot of the jurisdictions, for example, Saudi Arabia, Oman, they're looking at selling some of their assets in the water and power sector. And that becomes difficult if you've got heavy subsidization underway as well. And it's much easier if you've got cost-reflective tariffs. That enables the private sector to be able to manage the business and earn the expected returns that they're used to. Thirdly, it does result sort of from an economic standpoint. It results in an allocated inefficiency. And what that means when you translate that into English is real simple. If you've got low prices, consumers tend to consume too much of the product. And therefore, you've got too much of your resources in the economy going towards the production of that particular commodity. So if you've got cost-reflective tariffs, for example, then you're going to get the right allocative efficiencies and consumers are going to spend their money in the right areas of the economy. I think just building on that, we've talked a little bit about desalination and that continues to play a crucial part in meeting the water needs of the Gulf countries. But last month, you know, we had Yellow Door Energy here and, and Rory from Yellow Door was talking about projects they were working with in the industrial manufacturing about the reuse of water and how they were helping businesses like that. What opportunities and potential do you see in terms around the reuse of water into projects? Because water is a commodity, but it's also one we're led to believe is running out in the next 20 to 30 years. And I think this is an important aspect, I guess, leading on from that as well about consumers and the subsidies that we become more conscious about our usage, but also as businesses and industrial, how can we harness that reuse of water? So what potential do you find in that sector and projects, Bob? Again, in this area, I think there's huge potential. Quite frankly, if, if Rory needs some money and you've got a few extra dollars to spend, uh, I'd encourage you to invest in his particular company. He's in the right business. I think there's going to be a lot of opportunities with respect to using uh, re, you know, water. And if you look at, for example, the water that comes from the sewage treatment plants, frequently referred to as TSE or treated sewage effluent, there's huge opportunities to use that water. In a lot of countries, for example, in Saudi Arabia, I think it's only about, it's less than 20% of the water 
is being used for irrigation, for example. And there's opportunities to be able to use a lot more and also to use that TSC to refill aquifers in the countries. So finally, you know, you can also use it for food items as well that are used primarily for animal feed. So those are good examples of where TSE can come into play. And I think there's a huge future for water reuse throughout the GCC. And I guess government regulation and, and policy will play the sort of the key part in that. I, I remember a few years ago now in, in Abu Dhabi, might still be the case, trying to increase the use of TSE water there. They were giving it to companies for free if they wanted it. And obviously the cost of TSE reusing is more than desalination, I believe. So they were offering it as free as sort of a, to get companies interested and then get the market going. What do you think is the, the most important thing? Is it the government regulation like that? Let me just comment on, you, you made the observation that you thought perhaps that TSC is more expensive than uh, desalinated water, potable water. And the answer to that is actually it isn't. It's a byproduct. Uh, it's a byproduct of the sewage process. Uh, when you treat the uh, untreated influent, then you will get uh, treated sewage effluent. And that tends to be very low cost. And the real cost of getting that to the end user is really the cost of distribution. So that's the challenge. So you're seeing countries like, for example, Saudi Arabia, they're trying to come up with new ways of running a, a PPP program, whereby the developer is going to take that TSE, find a market for it, and also put the distribution system in place. So I think what they need there is, is basically enabling legislation to support that. And I think you need the same kind of thing in other jurisdictions, such as UAE, Oman, and other places. So to me, the key is being able to have a process in place where you can put the distribution process in and where the prices can get stabilized in actually selling the TSE. Sure. Much of the water and the TSE that's treated it goes back into the sea at the moment, doesn't it? So it's about building up networks and the infrastructure and also, I guess, reforming water tariffs, desalination tariffs for industries and the like and removing subsidies. That will make it more, more competitive. And that will help. And, and I think you also need to get better control of the water that's extracted from local wells. If you can, in fact, replace that with TSC, I think you'll, you'll end up being able to use the bulk of the TSC and not have to dump any of it into the sea. But just my question building on from a few parts there. Obviously, you mentioned about the agriculture sector and how you can reuse water into things like animal feeds. Now, I think one of the beliefs here in the UAE where I've come across is the agriculture sector uses up maybe about 80% of the water. The UAE is very conscious about its food security supply. I think at the moment we're consuming only about 10% of the products that are developed here in the UAE. Is there things that you see around that that is going to help change some of that dynamic? Because obviously 80% of the water going into agriculture, but it's only securing 10% of the food supply, it seems that almost an imbalance that needs to be struck and places probably a huge demand around the water sector around how much water is needed to be provided for such a minimal return. As I see it, your numbers are correct. It is around 80% water being used in the agriculture sector. And I think one of the issues that compounds that is that there really isn't much control over it. If you actually drive around some of the farms, you'll see the wells just literally running endlessly in some instances. And I think you need better control of that. So I think making use of TSC in some of these applications will help reduce the demand for that well water. There also needs to be more control over licensing of wells, for example. 
so that they're not easily obtainable as they have been in the past. And I think as well, the point I mentioned earlier, where you take the reused water, the TSC, and then get it back into the aquifers and mix it in with the well water so that over time you're able to build up those aquifers. So I think it's a combination of policies along those lines that are eventually going to end up with a more efficient use of well water. Uh, I think the energy, water, food nexus mm-hmm. is becoming increasingly important. Correct. And across the region, sustainable food production is one that is being addressed. Much of the food is imported at the moment. And while you'll always have a need, I guess, with the climate to import some food, much more of it can be produced here. And I guess having, having a water supply, sustainable water supply, will help facilitate that. So to finish, Bob... Uh, We've had some great insights from you today. We're almost at the end of 2020 now. What do you predict in 2021 for the region's water sector? What do you think will be the main themes? I think you've actually hit on it just in your last few observations where you talked about sustainability, environmental concerns. I think that's going to continue to be a major driver. And I think what's going to happen is there's going to be more and more focus on the use of the brine and dealing with that problem. As you know, when you produce desalinated water, there's a significant amount of brine that's produced. And that material right now is not being effectively used. It's, it's, it's dumped back into the sea. So you've got issues then associated with high salinity and other compounds in that material going into the water. What you're seeing happening, for example, and I'll use uh, NEOM in Saudi Arabia, where they've just recently issued a, uh, an, in fact, awarded a contract to a small company that is putting in a desalinated water process based on zero liquid discharge, or ZLD, as it's commonly referred to. In other words, they're forcing the company to produce water without discharging anything, and therefore recycling that brine somehow. Uh, Obviously, there's salt production, there's minerals that can be extracted and sold, perhaps making some beneficial materials such as bricks, uh, pavement, or, or what have you. But the idea is to stop the discharge of that brine into the sea. So when you ask me what do I see happening, I, I think that's going to be a focus that's going to be in the water sector uh, in the year ahead. Whether it's going to happen in, in 2021 or early perhaps 2022 remains to be seen, but I think we're going to see the day when one of the procurers possibly Saudi Arabia, maybe UAE, they're going to, or Oman, they're going to come out and they're going to have an RFP that's going to say, we want desalinated water produced. We want a couple hundred thousand cubic meters, but we don't want any of that brine going back in the sea. In other words, they're going to demand for a, a ZLD type plant that was zero liquid discharge. So to me, I think that's where the industry's heading. That's a, a good note to finish on. I've learned a lot today, Bob. All right. Thank you very much. I'd like to thank all the listeners for joining us for the latest edition of Energy and Utilities Market Talk. I'd like to thank Gareth Rapley. Thank you. And look forward to welcoming you back soon. If you've enjoyed the content today, please check out energy-utilities.com for more analysis, podcasts and interviews. And we'll speak to you soon.